We're right in the middle of number 41. And it says, no, we're not in the right in the middle, we're in the last two paragraphs of it. The thought that this earth can ever be perfected is finally one of man's greatest delusions. What this world is simply is a school. There she is. Sorry, we had to start without you, but I'm glad you're here. The thought that this earth can ever be perfected is finally one of man's greatest delusions. What this world is simply is a school through which the soul passes on its upward evolution. As in any school, one can also flunk out. (laughs) Flunk out of it and move downward for lower education elsewhere in order to become better grounded in what life is really all about. It's marvelous, isn't it? Perfection is, in other words, an ideal to be sought for the benefit of the students, not of the school. Were this school, our earth, to complete its educative purpose by means at present unimaginable, it would mean simply that souls still in need of its instruction would have to be enrolled elsewhere. No outward improvement will ever guarantee a corresponding improvement of the individual. Ultimately, man's betterment depends always on its own recognition of the need for it. That's a marvelous paragraph. That's, I was touching this, trying to touch this some on Sunday, trying to just get us into the, the feeling of this. You know, every single time that we protest against the conditions of the earth, you know, why, you know, why are the politicians so corrupt? Why are the laws so crazy? Why do people go, keep going to war? Why doesn't somebody do something about it? Um, we're just really missing the point. And I don't think we'll quite flunk out and move downward for lower education elsewhere. But whenever we imagine that outward conditions are the point of the exercise, then to that extent we've missed the point. The, the paradox of that is, and this is always the hardest thing to quite get, I mean, look how hard the masters work to try to make things happen. And in this particular Dwapar Yuga age, the masters are, are, are building. I mean, our, our masters are building. I was um, thinking about it today, um, that in India, where the guru-disciple tradition is, is extremely well established and well understood, um, they don't feel the need to build a structure around it. It's the, the master's contribution is the, the consciousness that he emanates that just lives in the ether and the disciples that he inspired, inspires and then the ability of those disciples to carry the inspiration on. There's, there's very little effort made. I mean, they, Sri Aurobindo, Sri Shivananda, both of them wrote a great deal. Ananda Ma's disciples have compiled her works and created books, so she, though she was illiterate. She did absolutely nothing herself. Um, they, they've, they put it in some form, and they put it in form for one reason only, which is so that um, it will endure and people will get the benefit of it. I mean, otherwise, why would they bother? Why would they even come? So there is this constant effort to push against the world as it is. And then you have... Uh, Yogananda and Swami Kriyananda, you know, Swami wrote so many books and just worked tirelessly for, you know, from for 65 years um, 
to, to establish as much as he could that would live on after him. But there was never a thought in his mind that it was in and of itself the point. You know, that the beautiful building or the, the perfect organization or the vast array of books or anything, it was always so that that, that consciousness uh, would be accessible to those who awakened it and wanted it. And that's the project that's always worth doing. And the masters, every master comes with that project. He's, he's there um, to awaken as many souls as he can. I just read this paragraph in a place called Ananda where it's just, Swami was answering something um, in, in the, uh, the book that Sarah Cryer compiled from interviews of people about their experiences in the early years of Ananda primarily. The name of the book escapes me at the moment, but um, two of the people, in a kind of jocular way, spoke of how Swami gave them a huge project and then just left them to deal with it. Good luck, kids. And it was sort of a a playing to the crowd kind of comment, the kind of thing that you say and you're joking and you're lamenting about what you were... Swami Swami took it very sternly. And he called them both up after he read it. He said, I never abandoned you like that. He said, my thoughts were always with you. And he, he, he just didn't, he didn't want it to stand even for a moment. And then I was reading in a place called Ananda how Swami described his leadership. So in some places, Swami would just says things that are so direct and so subtle. Like Master, Swami writes, I projected my thoughts toward people um, and so that, now how did he, he went on to explain it, so that if they wanted to tune into them, they could, and then they became our thoughts because they received them and then they became their own. Now think about that. When you have a thought, where does it come from? This is Master's statement in Autobiography of a Yogi. Thoughts are universally created, not individual and that all the time we are picking up our thoughts from a vibration in the ether, and so it's only a question of which vibration we're picking it up from. But when a thought occurs to you in that way, it, it's, it's yours. It comes to you, and you're... I think the other reason you feel that it's yours is because you've had to attune yourself to it. I mean, whether it, ideally you've lifted yourself to attune yourself to it, in the case of trying to tune in to what Swamiji would want to happen for Ananda, and then an inspiration comes to you. And then you act on that inspiration, and it has power, and you become creative with that inspiration, and it really does become yours. It's not like you're from the outside. Swamiji said, do this and do that. And I certainly know, and you've heard me say this before, in, in all the years that we worked here, Swami gave us like maybe two that I recall. There might have been three, but I remember two specific pieces of advice in, in 30 years. But everything we did, uh, he was telling us what to do. He was suggesting it to us, but we were finding it. And just it, but by consciously thinking, how would he handle this? And I've heard Swami say many times, I founded nine communities. And he just, he says it without... Um, any waffle, you know, he just says, I founded nine communities. I absolutely think he founded this one. He just did, because he was always projecting his thoughts toward us, and we were committed 
to trying to do it his way. So we were always hearing it all the time. There's a, a microphone. Yeah, did you feel that when you were acting, it was you acting? I never, it, it didn't occur to me. It was, it, it was so exactly what he said that once you had the thought, you, you were working on it on your own. And it, it was actually only when we dedicated the community that it, it came to me very vividly that I all of a sudden, just because he was sitting behind me when I was just introducing him, I think is all I was doing, I would, he, he was sitting behind me, I was introducing, and I would became vividly conscious in that moment that I had been acting completely under his guidance, even though we had not talked about it. It's not that we never converse, because of course I was always in touch with him, we talked a lot, but it wasn't, well, today's Monday, what shall we do? You know, we, we would keep him informed, and he would respond, but it was never a, you should do this, you should do that, and, and after that, do this, and then after that, do that. It was like, we thought we'd try this, we thought we'd try that, oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And he never said, yeah, just like I told you, you know, on some etheric level. But he, he put it out as, and he told us that too, as leaders, lead by consciousness. That's how he would put it. But it was just that little extra touch. Because if it comes to them as an inspiration, it'll be their thought. And uh, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And that's, that's the... I mean, this is very much about the development of Ananda, especially in the early years. But there were people who didn't... He was always trying to tell us, you know, you need to build on what I've done and not just go off. And you would see people who would do creative things but you could tell they weren't trying to build on what he'd done. And even though you would think that would be okay, you could feel that there was something that just wasn't happening correctly because there, there was more power. Because, you know, he would, and this is, oh, that was the other thing he said. I projected them the thoughts that Master gave to me. That was the last piece of what he wrote. Mm-hmm. So in, a, in a practical sense, how do you project your thoughts to people you're working with? That's a very simple question, isn't it? And actually quite a good one. I think you you do keep you keep a constant awareness. You don't you don't forget. You don't you know you're just you're just always knowing that you always have sort of a force in relationship to them. You know you, you remember people rather than forgetting them. You uh, uh, think positive and supportively about what they're doing. Uh, you do actually put your mind to their projects, and, and if creative ideas come to you, you can just literally raise those ideas vibrationally. It's not that you can never speak. I mean, certainly, um, Swami freely and often, you know, shared red-hot ideas that had come to him. So it wasn't like you couldn't. I think it's like, it's like an expansion of your aura. You just expand your aura to include everything that's going on all the time, and you don't, you don't let that down. You don't just sort of repudiate it. You're just always sort of feeling like the whole thing is moving forward and that we're all doing this together and that everybody's involved in it. I think Swamiji may have been more specific than that in the sense of, you know, now is the time too. But I'm not really sure. Because we certainly, I certainly through my life have felt like now is the time to do things and where do those things come from? And at other times I've really felt known that this is not the time to do it. <laughs> and uh, where does that come from? I'm sure some of it is misguided. 
Uh, but not all of it. I think it's love, actually, also. You know, you're really loving the people around you and the people you're working with and uh, rooting for them on a, on a very deep level, just feeling uh, you can do it. You know, we, could, we can make this happen. So you're not just only projecting, uh, you know, put the, in your, in your particular case, you know, put the, put the soap on the bottom shelf and the candles on the top, but just the whole idea that you have the capability to make this happen. And that's also a kind of thought that you receive that, that, that gives you ideas because you feel like someone's really with you. And uh, I, I noticed with Swamiji, he would, um, if he put someone in a position of responsibility, even if, and he wasn't stupid, he knew that they were not carrying that out effectively, he would, he would never allow any negativity, any negative conversation or criticism, unless he was going to take them out of that position. I mean, it, until he was going to take them out of a position, he never allowed, he never would, and he never allowed anyone else to criticize them. In other words, if, if, if you were his man, he backed you. And if it was clear that you needed another position, then he would take you out. But as long as he'd given you the responsibility, he stuck with you. And that was another thing that he projected. I think it's just, you know, I support you. So it gives you, obviously, it gives you a lot of confidence. I mean, what is it? You, we all know what it's like when the people you work for are undermining you even mentally. It's a disaster. And it, it, it was very confusing for people sometimes with Swamiji because there were situations sometimes that were very difficult and, and you would try to get Swami to talk to you about so-and-so's difficulties. And I don't mean universally that he would never have a conversation with you about what can you do about somebody's struggle. But if specifically a person was in a, a key position of responsibility that Swami had put them in, he wouldn't sit and nitpick about them. You know, he would, he would have a serious conversation sometimes if it was positively directed. But he wouldn't allow that just kind of undermining, even thoughts. I mean, I've appreciated, and I think I talked about it in here, just like if you think it, you might as well speak it. It's, thoughts are just as powerful as words and are just happening. And so we, we can't just put on a face and then have a mind behind it that doesn't match and think that uh, the mind isn't the greater force. You know, it has to be a genuine uh, projection of that. Uh, Ekavir has a question on that side. Again, on a practical basis, I see it uh, in parenting and coaching, mm-hmm. where we love, you know, obviously we love our children, we want the best for them, so we try to project ideas, and uh, the other half of the equation is they're attunement with us. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, in the same fashion, when we're in attunement with Master. Yes, exactly. Yeah, attunement is the whole key, especially when you when you hear Swami say it just like that, just like Master. I was always I was projecting the thoughts that Master put into my mind. That's it's a it's. It's so subtle and so much bigger than we have attained yet, but uh, so interesting to work toward. And we're going to be influenced anyway, 
So the more one-pointed and elevated our influence becomes, obviously the more everything will open up for us. That's why Swami was able to do so much and he told us all the time that was why he could. He attuned himself with Master and Master just did it through him. And he would say it, you know, like that, just so casually. I just put my, my consciousness at the spiritual eye and I asked Master to show me and so then I wrote six songs and two books and 45 minutes, you know, that sort of... <laughs> it wasn't magic like that, but it, it felt like that when he would talk about it. Okay? <clears throat> and then, let's see, where were we? Oh, I lo- and he says, you, you flunk downward in order to become better grounded in what life is really all about. And that, that's another, that phrase I also was realizing. You flunk because you don't understand what life is really all about. That's what flunking is. Is that we're, we're, we're devoting our energy in the wrong direction to the wrong things. And so we have to have experiences until we become better grounded in what life is really all about. That's, um, I've said it many times, but sometimes when people are going through what appears to be unbearable, unreasonable suffering, you have to realize that the reason that's being pushed upon them is so that they will become better grounded in what life is really all about. And we tend not to get that way unless we lose the capacity to ignore what life is all about. So if we're making ourselves comfortable and entertained and distracted and we're adored by the people around us and all of that, we begin to think that that's what life is all about. And we we tend not to think so seriously unless it ceases to please us and then we have to become more desperate. Yet, or the other side of it is, which is true, that you get everything you want and it's unbearably um, unsatisfying. But th- that mood then comes on, on us. What is life really all about? And that's the question you just have to ask over and over again. Why are we really here? I've been reading um, The Imitation of Christ, which is a very, uh, well, by the title gives it away. It has a certain Christian orientation. It's very subtle, though. It's, it's very subtle. It can be read on many different levels. But one of the, the orientations there is just that little, there is time and then there is eternity. And certain things happen within time, but what we really want is those things that happen only within eternity. And so that contrast is always being drawn. That was uh, Jyotish sitting in the midst of his horrible leaking dome in a torrential rainstorm with this gigantic funnel and all these tubes catching the rain and then running the water down the sink. And this was, must have been, it was before he was married, so it must have been 71 or 72. And there used to rain, we used to have these incredible rainstorms, and it was a dark winter night. I don't know why I had to go by his house. It was pouring rain, it was just a deafening racket on the roof, and inside the water was just running, except it was contained in these tubes and pouring down the sink. And Jotish was sitting quietly in a comfortable chair with a gaslight behind him, you know, just oblivious <laughs> to the whole thing. I said, I mean, in my way, I said, how can you stand this? I mean, it was just crazy. I lived in a little tiny trailer. I mean, what was I thinking? But um, he said, well, he said, there's two kinds of things in life, the permanent and the temporary. 
He said, you can endure anything as long as it's temporary. And he said, when you come to think about it, everything is temporary. <laughs> and that was that. But it's an interesting way just to, to move it. And that's what the imitation of Christ is always talking about. In the midst of everything, ask yourself, compare this to the eternal. And the orientation, which is, you know, sometimes it takes you a little too far, is you, know, you, want, you don't want anything because what you really want is eternity. And what is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. So you want to be on what is really going to take you to eternity and not which is that which is going to confuse you as to what the real purpose of life is. And even this, oh, we want this world to be right. Somebody do something about those people. Somebody do something about, you know, they're cutting down the trees or whatever they're doing. Somebody do something. Why would that be the point? But what I was starting to say, and now I realize I, I lost track of it, but the masters work very hard, extremely hard, to, to make something positive. But what they're trying to make possible is actual progress. And actual progress is only and always individual enlightenment. That's all. But that is eternal, you see. And it may be created by the publishing of the books, by the getting of the building, by the making of the community, by the establishment of this. By So we work very hard to have these um, perceivable realities so that other souls who find themselves in this school with us can find the right classrooms, basically, and learn what they're supposed to learn. But it's always and only a means to that end. And if, it, if one ever begins to think of it as an end in itself, this is, uh, when, when we were first uh, making Ananda happen in 1977, when Swami went to India to take a seclusion after writing The Path, and he visited the shop of Suffering Moses, that's, that was his, is his name, was his name, he's passed now. Suffering Moses was, long-suffering Moses was where the name came from, because he does all, he, he, was one of the major craftsmen in Kashmir who does the paper mache and the hand carving and the, the incredible um, embroidery. He, he supervised many artists doing that. So we were living uh, in trailers and teepees and without electricity and had no paved roads. And, you know, it was, it was primitive. It was great. It was primitive. And Swami's writing me from India that, you know, Suffering Moses tells me now that all of these handicrafts have to be, you have to start when you're a child, and now with uh, compulsory free education for everyone, there's no children following these paths, and these are handicrafts that will be, in another generation, will be completely gone, nobody will even know how to do them, so this is the moment. So Swamiji, he starts writing me, because I was his secretary, because we needed to generate about, I don't know what it was, about maybe $10,000 by the time we were all done, maybe less, so Swami could buy what you now see in Crystal Hermitage, which is all that carved furniture, all of that furniture that's there, and uh, other things, rugs and a few other things that he bought. But mostly it was the furniture, which Moses was selling to him at a great deal, and even with shipping, you know, it, it all went on. We were living in trailers and teepees, and Swami's own house was not crystal hermitages. It was just that one. It was just the one dome, which is the living room, and um, I probably was still leaking very badly at that point. And it was, 
you know, pecky cedar walls. I mean, it was like, and he's, he's bringing home a carved walnut banquet table that seats 12. Right. And like, where are we going to put this? And how are we going to use it? It was so far out of the box. As it happened, um, we got the San Francisco house just at the same time. And so by the time all that stuff came, it all went into the San Francisco house. We had that, and for 10 years we had that um, mansion that we rented. And, uh, and by then the Crystal Hermitage was there. But the conversation was this, Swamiji said, in America, if, if we don't create an atmosphere that is refi- as re- that an atmosphere, an environment that is as refined as our ideas, people will not recognize that our ideas are that refined. In, in India, he said, you don't have to do it, but in America, you do. And, but then he, he made a very important point. He said, but once we begin to just try to make our environment nicer and nicer, you know, so gee, we could gold plate this and we could put silk on the walls and we could get brocade over here. And you're, you're no longer asking the question, you know, what is the purpose of doing this? Then you begin to lose where you're going. But, but he said, well, we have to bring it to a certain level because if we stay below that, we're not going to communicate. And it's, it is really true. I, when Rachel and Brian were getting married, I took her family, I had the opportunity to take her family through Crystal Hermitage into the Moksha Mandir. And they didn't know really much about some of her family. They didn't really know much about Ananda. But when they saw that, which is, it's, it's really simple. It's not luxurious at all. But obviously, it's the product of a very refined consciousness. And when you see that, it, it makes you wonder who's behind this. People who could create beauty like this. Who's behind this? What is, what is really going on here? And it would take a much greater leap um, to come into the way the buildings looked when they looked. So Ami kept telling us over and over, you've got to pave the roads. I mean, nobody, we just couldn't get that. But he said, you've got, in Ananda village when the roads weren't paved, he said, we've got to pave the roads. He said, you just cannot, in America, have people come up in their cars and have to drive on these rutted roads. They won't come back. And you know, it was true. They ha- you've got to pave the roads. Because it would, but once we paved the roads, you know, that's enough. We didn't have to cobblestone them and, you know, it, it, you understand? Because, so in our work, when we're working so hard to make so much happen, as we are all the time, we have to realize all we're actually trying to do is to make self-realization accessible. And that's the end of it. So we ask ourselves, you know, where's the, where's the borderline? And, it, and when you get very inwardly focused, you know, if, if the whole thing is about the building, then you have too much creative energy and you start just using it inside. That's why in Parkinson's Law, uh, that book about how things are done, the most, one of Parkinson's laws, work expands to fill the time allotted. That's one of his laws. But one of his laws is by the time you build your perfect headquarters building, your company is just about to collapse. (laughs) Because prior to that, you were too busy doing your work, your creative work, to worry about your own building. By the time you have enough time, energy, and money to direct your creativity toward your own building, you're finished. (laughs) He used 
the British Empire is the most outstanding example because by the time they had built New Delhi to their perfection is when uh, Gandhi took it away from them. <laughs> because they were so busy taking care of themselves they forgot what they were actually doing. Of course, they never really knew what they were actually doing over there, but that was something different. But it's important to keep in mind because it's easy to think, I don't need to do anything. So even now, even as we live now, in this chaotic, increasingly violent universe, world that we're, globe that we're living on right at the moment, we can't um, uh, ignore our responsibility. And, and, but our responsibility is not to make them stop um, by putting out a counterforce on that level. That's not our job. That may well be the job of military people or people for whom that is their next step. You know, there are people in the world whose next step is to, you know, arm themselves and know how to use their arms in order to counter that force. But for people like us, our responsibility, just like making the ideas refined enough, is to continually do battle on a higher level by just as all that dark force is being put out into the world, we must continuously. And it's not so much that we sit down and aim the arrows of light unless you really feel to do that, but we must recognize that our vibrations are constantly affecting. And, and we must become very, very good. I mean, very pure, very, uh, very much light beings, because this is a time when that is extremely required of us, and we really have to do it. Swamiji, um, because he was uh, highly motivated by Master's predictions that there would be great difficulties and several um, of his own uh, prophetic readings that he received here and there from relatively reliable sources spoke about the importance of his role in all of that. You know, and he, and I, it, he always thought he would be on the planet you know, during during those very difficult times, but apparently he's not going to be. But much of what he did was motivated, uh, and one of the reasons he was, among many reasons why he was driven to work so hard, was because he, he, he felt that he needed to get a huge light force out in front of what Master had promised was going to be a very challenging dark force, um, so that when people needed it, it would be there. And that's I mean, sort of like this building here. I mean, we run our temple and we have a wonderful um, flow of energy here. But I also feel that we're also here because there will be a time when this is more and more needed. And the fact that we're just so grounded in what we're doing and are so capable of, of continuing, we're, we're setting it in place um, for times that we don't even know, for reasons we don't even know. Does that make sense? It's important to keep in mind. It was interesting because when, we, when I was first living here, the thought was always here, well, if, if times get difficult, I'll just go back up to Ananda village where I came from. Uh, but in 1989, which was now quite a long time ago, when uh, we had a bad earthquake here, and I was riding my bike um, from wherever we, well, I guess we were in the community then, to here, 
and all the, all the electricity was out. Our electricity was on, oddly enough, but the rest of the area was out. And so I'm, I'm driving down uh, the road, and it's very dark, and most people are outside because people really didn't want to be inside. So it was a very unusual atmosphere. It was very dark, and people were sitting on the sidewalks and sitting on the porches, and which people don't do. And I thought, oh, heavens, the more difficult it gets, the more we have to stay here. You know, far from that being the exit line, that's the point when we have to open these doors wide and keep the energy moving. But that's true right now. You know, this is, it's important that we make Christmas a very, very deep and spiritual experience because the world, the world needs that to be projected out. Not because the world will ever get better, but because that will make self-realization accessible. Because we're projecting thoughts. Right? Okay. Perfection is, in other words, an ideal to be sought for the benefit of the students and not the school. And then man's betterment depends always on his own recognition of his need for it. Well, there it is, isn't it? And nothing can be done about that. (laughs) And that's what we have to cultivate in ourselves. That's why, in the imitation of Christ as an example... It's constantly reminding us of what a veil of tears this world is and what a haven of glory the heavenly world is because we just have to keep reminding ourselves that we really need to do this. That was a a question that Shivani asked Swamiji once, you know, what are the keys to uh, success on the spiritual path? And he said that you absolutely recognize it's a matter of life or death. If it's a casual interest, um, something will take you away from it. And, and it, that's why it, you know, many spiritual teachings do just constantly emphasize suffering so much that people don't want to hear it anymore. But the point is to, to remind us that it, it's, a, it's the backdrop. Even if it, it works out well for a while, the backdrop of it is that nothing that isn't, of, that isn't divine will be yours forever. And when you lose it, insofar as you have defined your happiness by it, you will suffer in proportion to that. And uh, it's no fun. So you, we just, we're either in it or some part of us remembers. And it's not like we have to suffer because I remember talking to Swamiji very early and telling him that I just had this passion for being happy. I mean, it was the most important thing to me was to find happiness. I don't mean in being jolly, but just to find happiness and know where it came from and how to have it, just, I was, it was an intense motivation. And then I, but I said, swear, but I've always been happy. <laughs> you know, nothing bad has ever happened to me. And he said, just, you know, he looked at me like past lives. Oh, yeah, that's right, of course. It just got somewhere before I was born in, into this body. I'd been there and I'd done that and I wasn't going there again. And, and I was far enough into the understanding of how to work with your own inner reality um, that I, I, was, I was already moving. I was already doing that. I mean, even as a young person, as a teenager, I was always conscious of the fact that everybody said they wanted to be happy, but nobody wanted to actually change any aspect of their life <laughs> themselves or anything. They just wanted to declare that they were unhappy and wanted to be happy, but they wouldn't examine their attitudes, they wouldn't shift their attachments, they wouldn't 
change their priorities. It was, the whole thing was so bewildering to me. I just felt like I was always just leaning against the wall just trying to figure out, what in the heck is going on here? I know I wasn't the only one. Just like, what are they doing? Swamiji commented once that when, as an adult, when he would visit his relatives sometimes, he kept thinking that there was some sort of deep meaning there that he was just missing, you know, or some sort of underlying message that he just hadn't tuned into. And then he finally, finally realized, no, this is it. You know, there's just nothing more happening. They're, they're just doing this. You know, they're just kind of going in circles. And I remember we were in a, he was in a restaurant once and he, he, he heard, as he put it, an intelligent conversation going on at the table next to him. And he sort of shamelessly eavesdropped for a while and then he sort of went over and apologized and he said, but it's so unusual to hear an actual interesting, intelligent conversation going on. <laughs> And it is, really. (laughs) Oh, well, moving right along. I don't mean to insult the whole human race, but that's how it is. Not at Ananda. At Ananda, conversation is always interesting. Okay. So, uh, I remember, where was I? Oh, I think I was having a manicure. And a woman was in there with her daughter, and and the daughter was maybe ten, and the mother was trying to keep the child entertained while she had her manicure. So they had, I think it was People magazine or one of those, which I confess that I do read myself when I'm in the beauty parlor. (laughs) I guess there's no such thing as a beauty parlor anymore, but anyway. uh, But they were discussing, you know, all the different pictures and which, which actress actually wore the same outfit better than the other one and I mean, they were having just like, you know, quality mother-daughter time. Okay. But everybody's where they are and they all move where they're going. But I was amazed. That, but that's, why should I be? Okay, number 45. Several of the monks persuaded me against my... Wo- 42. Oh, I, I turned it... Oh, 42. Okay, I did think that was right. 42. Oh, this is an amazing one. Of India's riches in a higher age, the master once told me, in those days people used to eat off of golden plates and cast them into the Ganges. Such was their wealth, and such is the rise and fall of civilizations. Never be attached, he then said, to the passing scenes of life. You know, India is famous for its poverty in our particular age. But why, why did England rush in there? Because there was so much wealth to be had. And how did England become so rich as, as India simultaneously became so poor? Where did the jewels and the Taj Mahal end up in the crown of England? You know, it's just like it was a, it was a rape. But uh, it was the karma of India. What did India do that caused them to have been that wealthy and then to be not so wealthy. It's just, how do you measure all of this? It goes up and it goes down. But when it happens in our time, and it's our bank accounts, our, our expectations, we take it very personally. But in fact, it just goes, the cycle goes on and on and on. You know, it's, it's war, it's peace, it's, anyway, it's amazing. You don't even know what to think about that. When I, um, 
when Swami wrote uh, Material Success Through Yogic Principles, which later became Success and Happiness Through Yogic Principles, or whatever it's called, we called it the Material Success Course. Um, I had a lot of fun writing uh, publicity for that, which never got used by anyone, but I was in India somewhere and somebody asked me to work on it, so I did. Uh, Because Swami was asked the question, what makes your prosperity course different than any others? I think Tony Robbins does a whole lot. There was was some other names that Swami didn't know and I didn't know who they were. But somebody just asked him, what makes your course different than any others? And Swami's answer was marvelous. I am the disciple of a great master. That was his explanation. And like many of Swami's, you know, semi-koan things, I, I, I thought about that for a long time and tried to think, what, what did he mean? And what I ended up writing was, uh, most material success courses teach you how to influence the material plane from the material plane. And you learn how to use that same kind of energy, how to negotiate, how to invest, how to you know, all these different things, to move it around on that plane. But Swami, I am a disciple of a great master, is telling you how to influence the material plane by accessing the spiritual plane. And once you're well established on the spiritual plane, the higher can always influence the lower. And that's, that's where the real power comes from. And that, was, that is the difference by yogic principles. It's a completely different way. That's why so much of that course, even the introduction of it, just starts talking about Shankya and Vedanta and the three systems of philosophy and I mean it just starts way it it takes him a long time before he mentions anything that sounds anything like what you would think of as a a success course because you first have to just establish yourself in this wholly different flow of energy and then you can do it but I also uh, was reflecting I think I put this in what was never used so I see now I'm telling you about it because no one ever used it Um, that you know, the wealth of India was legendary, like this. There was so much wealth there. And the, the secret of their wealth was the, the power of their yoga. That's what really gave them. That was in the age when uh, uh, everything was in harmony with Sanat and Dharma. And the material plane was easy to manipulate then, because the lower always agrees with the higher. And then when the British came in, and they started taking all that material wealth, um, India took the, the real secret of its wealth and took it to the Himalayas and hid it up there. Hid it in the consciousness of the Himalayan yogis. Because that was their real treasure. The rest of it was just gold and silver. But the real treasure was the power that enabled them to manifest that kind of wealth. And now, because it's Dwapara Yuga, literally, that power has literally has come out of the Himalayas and is now being shared openly because it's, it's the right time for it. And that's, that's the real treasure of India, which eventually will bring to India and to the whole world because we will get back in tune with divinity. And so the, the intention of Master's teaching is God. And the the intention of all that we're going through now is to get us back in tune with where all that power comes from because right now we're just 
we meaning the collective here, is just going insane with material power. We just, we're just taking and taking and uh, disregarding Mother Nature and just in, in wildly. Um, I, I know that uh, at Ananda Village in the summer, Atman said that he, he had all these statistics about how much bigger uh, houses are in this country now, how much smaller the families are, how much bigger the closets are, how many people with big houses have storage units, and that. And then he said that that self storage storage units is the fastest growing segment in the real estate market. That means think about all the pieces of that. And what is that about? That's just more. And it's just more, literally more and more stuff. Very strange. And and the reason we're doing that is because we're so disconnected from where the real source of our sense of wealth comes from, our sense of prosperity. Someone was talking about a job that he had, and he used the phrase, he called his job soul-stealing. That was what he called his job. That it just, And he quit. Um, but I was also talking about the, how much money people think they need to live. Well, if what you're doing gives you nothing but money, you want money. But if you're doing something that gives you a lot of feeling of wealth and well-being, then you can actually literally feel quite content on much less money because you're being fed from somewhere else. And that's, again, where what we see going on all around us just keeps escalating. And this is our job is to make some other perspective completely available. Okay, let's take a break. Everything is different. I, well, who knows what that was about, truthfully. I mean, the power of uh, precious metals and gemstones is that they have power, and they give you power. That's why, that's why they've been of value from higher ages. People know, that's why you know, we all wear this, the bangle with the gold and the silver, because it actually gives you power. We don't wear it um, because it's expensive. We wear it's expensive because it gives you power. But people don't know that anymore. I mean, that's what the, you know. These stones are um, astrological because wearing them actually gives energy to me. And but now it, they're just expensive. And and they don't. They wouldn't have to be expensive. The expensive is a strange way of of. Uh, Power has become money. But if it was a, a society in which we were all working for each other's welfare, we would just give each other what we needed in order to be strong and to be happy. We wouldn't be selling everybody everything. I mean, just the whole buying and selling, it's, all, it's a wholly different way of thinking about things. Um, I was reading, a, I, I was listening to an audio book, and I, I only listened to a portion of it, and it it had something to do with um, the great, great, great tides of history. And it was talking about when countries began to go out and explore. And, and they talked about how countries had such different attitudes. You know, the uh, Spaniards would go and conquer. And, uh, and the Chinese culture, which you know, was this huge ancient culture that was just sitting there all by itself, when Dharmadas and Nirmala went to Russia, 
couple of years ago. I've never been to Russia. But Dharmadas said one of the things that struck him so strongly when he got there was that it was a, you know, it was a huge country, a very ancient culture with an enormous rich tradition and he knew nothing about it and they didn't care that he knew nothing about it. They were so content within their own power and wealth and tradition it just they weren't trying to make other people know about them. He wasn't talking about modern times. It was more the whole well the Chinese were, you know, they had their whole world there and their this is how at least the book put it. When they started sending their ships out and exploring their culture demanded that they take and give presents to everyone because to take from the countries they found would make it seem as if they needed something. <laughs> and so their culture demanded that they always be in the position, the superior position, where they were just giving. You see how you just turn it just a little bit? But it became so expensive they stopped sending their ships out. <laughs> and it was just describing how different empires were built and that, that they just couldn't do that anymore because they were just giving away more than they really could afford. Now, why did I say that? I was talking about gold and the value of things and so on and the buying and the selling. So anyway, I think it was fascinating. Just, you just turn it. We, we think one way and we think that's the way you're supposed to think, but it's just the yuga we're living in and the culture we were raised in. Just, and nothing else, nothing else but that. Okay. Number 43. One night, those living near the... This is just a good story. There's not too much to say about this. One night, those living near the master's apartments at Mount Washington heard a loud sound of clanking metal. The following morning, they learned the cause of that tumult. At this point, I must back up a space. The master had told some of his disciples that he had lived centuries ago as a military commander in Spain. His divinely appointed task at that time had been to help liberate the country from the Moors in order to protect the integrity of Christianity. The noise that previous night had been caused by a Spanish soldier who had been under his command at that time. He had materialized in full armor to ask for the master's blessing that he be released. In what way? I have no idea. From what I understand, the master gave him the release he sought. In the present lifetime, the master knew no Spanish. I remember him greeting me once, however, with a big smile in Spanish. Señor Cuaron was visiting Mount Washington in Mexico City. What the master said was, ¿Cuál es su nombre? What is your name? (laughs) I answered in Spanish, upon which the three of us had a good laugh. But you know, there it was. What I got from seeing this is just the magnitude of the master's mission and his life is so far beyond our comprehension we just really don't know what's going on and it it, um, it, it, there's a pleasant humility that can set in with that that just and it's about ourselves too we 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 don't want to get too hung up on just trying to figure everything out because you've got a a soldier materializing in full armor in front of master asking to be released from something or another. I mean, just, you have all these forces that are always playing. And it just, we just take care of your attitude in the moment, do the best that you can, try to attune to master, try to receive his thoughts, and don't try to understand it too far in any direction because you just don't know what's happening. Um, Swami talked about that. People would talk about understanding master. 
How could you possibly? He would say. I, with Swamiji, who's had a, a vast consciousness himself, I just remember the first time I heard him give a, a television interview in French. I'm a very, I was a very inexperienced person in the terms of the world. But I knew Swami and I was pretty, you know, I was pretty intent on uh, appreciating him and learning from him. And this French-Canadian television crew came in and Swami just sat in the living room and just gave the whole interview in French, just as casually as that. But what it did for me was uh, realize because he could just talk so easily in a language I couldn't comprehend, you know, how much of him I couldn't comprehend. You know, how often he was just going somewhere that I had no idea where he was going. Like Master, remember when, uh, it's in this book somewhere where one of the devotees asked Master about a certain saint who had materialized in front of him, and Master just responded, well, there's so many, I'm not really sure who you're talking about. Like, it's a big deal to us, but not to him, it's just his life. Yes, Stephen, why don't you pass the... There you are. This is a bit of an aside, but when we were on our pilgrimage to Los Angeles recently, on one of our bus rides, Ram Smith was... You know, he told us a lot of interesting things about Los Angeles and Yogananda. And he pointed us in a direction outside the bus and said, this is the San Fernando Valley up there. And as it happens, that is the same... Fernando that right. Yogananda was. Yes, exactly. And, and, you know, I thought it was so interesting in light of him having ultimately settled in Los Angeles uh-huh. in that last incarnation. Yeah, what do you know? Yeah. yeah. Ferdinand the Saint. Yes, Ferdinand the Saint of Spain. Yeah, San Fernando. Huh. Ram likes to draw um, esoteric connections. So he's a master at the esoteric connection. Yeah, and who knows? And who knows how actually interrelated all of those things are? What we, where do the forces come from? You just never can tell. Huh. All right. So, moving on, number 44. Also, you know, like, an unresolved karma. Like, who was that soldier? And what was he being released from? Uh, was he uh, trapped in hatred? Was he... Had he betrayed uh, Yogananda and he was uh, caught in guilt? Uh, was he, did he not know he was dead and he was still fighting an astral battle? Was he a ghost who had been too attached to this world and couldn't cross over? He, was, he, prayed, he wanted to be released, but from what? Had he made a vow that he hadn't kept and was never going to be able to fulfill? I mean, you just go on and on. How many things could possibly... But through time and space, he came to him still in that incarnation because materializing in, presumably materializing in that armor meant that he was somehow still in that incarnation. Yeah, uh, but you, you would, you could. Remember the stories of uh, that woman who, who committed suicide and went to the part in the astral world where despairing suicides go. And uh, she, she escaped from it and came back into her body. So her suicide was unsuccessful, but it was a near-death experience of a very different type. And when she came into that very dark astral world, um, she, she, she could tell that people had been there for even for centuries because the 
uh, intensity of their negative self-involvement that had caused them to take their own lives made them incapable of perceiving any reality except for whatever it was that was so absorbing their consciousness, which is, of course, the state you would be in when you would kill yourself. I mean, you kill yourself. people kill themselves for many different reasons, but it's one of the reasons why people would kill themselves, that they become so um, self-involved that they literally cannot see any other reality except what's happening, and they, they can't think about anything except that. So if you die with that kind of intensity, you're, just not, you're not automatically saved from that. Now, she was in the same state, but finding herself there, uh, she had enough of a capacity to, to be shocked out of it and to suddenly seek another alternative. But the others were still captured there. So you, you can be kicked out of your body and then hold that incarnation even outside of the body for as long as you need. Now, all time is short compared to eternity. Yes, Tandava. What I find interesting about this story is um, it doesn't seem like just a ghost. They say no. he materialized yes, and they exactly. actually heard the clanking of his armor. Yeah. Um, but you know, most of the stories we have of people actually materializing are like the masters coming back right. and resurrecting. Um, you know, so what's really going on yeah, there? It's, it's very confusing. Did he, I mean, was he, uh, did master draw him because the karma was expiated? Did he wear the armor because in his own consciousness he was still wearing the armor? Did he clank so that the disciples would hear him and everybody could talk about it? And just like, you just, wow. Swami's famous answer to equally confusing subjects was just to shrug his shoulders. And, and the, other one, the other answer he gave is some questions won't be answered till we're in the astral world. You just don't know, you don't know where to go with it. But it makes you humble, actually. It makes you not quite so dogmatic about what you say, because every, everything could be different. Okay, so while we're on the, you know, the mood for weird things, we'll have one more. This whole little, we'll, every so often we hit these little, little pockets of weirdness. Several of the monks at Mount Washington had read a book claiming that certain masters from ancient Lemuria, a continent said to have existed in ancient times in the South Pacific, still lived inside Mount Shasta near the Northern California border. Hmm. Okay, ancient masters from Lemuria are living inside Shasta. Why not? Um, intrigued, a little group planned to travel north and see if they could meet these legendary people. How strange, I thought, that even though they were living with the true master, they could entertain such a fantasy. To me, their curiosity seemed merely a mark of inner restlessness. When the master heard of their plan, he told them, there are no masters living there. He added an interesting comment. There have been colonists, however. <laughs> however, no masters. That final comment intrigued me, not because I felt any personal attraction to going there, but as a possibility for future investigation on someone's part. <laughs> there have been colonists, though. I mean, what on earth was he seeing? Or on heaven or earth or 
Mars or Lemuria? I mean, what was he seeing? I have to say, and I mean, a lot of people agree, the first time I saw Mount Shasta, I was traveling. Uh, it was, a, it was that, the first little lecture tour that we ever took. And I was the speaker, and uh, Nalini and Durga and Sahadev and Agni were the musicians. And we, we went off on this, like, I think it was even six weeks, we drove up to the northwest in Swami's big car. And uh, we stopped at the first rest stop, and the four singers sat down, and they were, they, I, you know, we were trying to find out what they could sing, which was almost no songs, you know. They knew just a handful. And I remember saying, oh, my God, you're no more prepared than I am. How are we going to do this? But uh, we were hosted here and there, and we went to Shasta, and we arrived at night, and we stayed in somebody's house. And when I woke up in the morning, I was in a bedroom with a wall of windows right up against the base of that mountain, which I didn't know when we came in. And it, I don't, I don't know where the colonists came from, but there's something in that mountain that is not, uh, not the ordinary. You know, whether it's the presence of great souls somewhere within it, whether it's the mountain itself. I mean, I, I'm, I used to have more fixed opinions about these things, but I'm, in, in India, the uh, Arunchala, is that that's how it's pronounced? The place where Ramana Maharshi has his Arunachala. I can never remember how many syllables it has. They have so many syllables in South India, I, I, I tend to lose a lot of them. Um, that, do you remember when, let's see, I don't remember where it was, but they were going to, uh, airlift vowels from Hawaii and, and drop them on Czechoslovakia or Hungary. That's one of those places that has, you know, no vowels. <laughs> so uh, they have a lot of extra syllables in the south of India and they need to take them where the language is too cryptic. But anyway, the mountain itself is considered to be an incarnation of Shiva. And, and when you're there in this town... There are lots of, like they have the little roadside temples, and in a lot of the little roadside temples, it's the mountain itself. And Ramana Maharshi lived on that mountain and went there because it was a holy place, and you circumambulate the mountain, you walk around the mountain, because it, is, it itself is said to be the deity. I, I used to just like dismiss things like that, but I have no idea what to think now. There's no doubt there's incredible power there. But a great master lived there, and he was probably following in the footsteps. Many had lived there before him. And in Vasishtha Guha, which is the cave up from Rishikesh, upriver from Rishikesh, um, where Swami Purushottamananda lived for a very long time, a very great, radiant saint, Swami Kriyananda um, took seclusion right in that place. And it's, it's this wonderful cave that you go in. It's marvelous to meditate in. Well, the tradition is actually that the cave goes way farther into the mountain, but it was sealed off because great sages in their astral bodies are meditating back there. And so they don't want just everybody just wandering back in. So you, you, you're, you're standing outside of Mount Shasta, and you're not standing at a pile of rocks. Is it, is it the... Um, implanted vibrations of great sages that used to be there? Is it the present consciousness of beings that are still there? Master says there's no masters, but they're colonists. Where did they come from? There have been colonists. Yeah, who knows? You have to have the 
capacity to see it. But I also like the way Swami wrote, their curiosity seemed merely a mark of inner restlessness. And I felt that was a very important teaching to keep in mind. Because sometimes um, we do become infatuated with things and intent upon them, and we have to actually ask ourselves, you know, why am I doing this? How, how is this really serving me? Um, if the alternative is to be very tomasic, it's better to be active. But if we're just running in circles, and this is what Swami's saying, they're living with this great master, and they're taking a field trip to Mount Shasta, because their restless minds weren't able to see really where they were, what they were doing. And that's, that's always something to think about and worth thinking about. So, um, I think that's as far as that one can go. Any other questions or comments about the colonists on Mount Shasta? Okay. Um, number 45. Several of the monks persuaded me, against my will as it happened, to go with them to a spiritual movie. They were so eager for my company that I finally relented. That's wonderful, they exclaimed. Now then, would you please ask Master for permission? <laughs> I realized at once, of course, why they'd been so anxious for my company. I did ask him, and he gave his consent, albeit reluctantly. Don't waste your time going to movies, he told us. Even when the movie concerns the life of a saint, it must be filtered through those who write it, then through the director and the producer, and finally through the usually far from saintly actors. What comes out in the end is a very diluted and even distorted version of the true story. I was amused. Uh, somebody gave me a, 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 a movie of Francis and Claire. I don't remember. And I watched some of it. I think I was sick. And so I watched probably all of it. And it, it, it wasn't unbearable. And then there were these little director's things and I was watching it. And they, um, this girl who played Claire was chosen because of her beauty, um, her physical appearance, let me put it that way. She wasn't beautiful except by the most superficial definition of it. And she spent most of the time in the movie. <laughs> you know, and then she would, for a change, she'd do it like that. And then every once in a while she'd do it like this. And then afterwards they're interviewing her and she's, uh, she's every bit the airhead she appeared on the screen. And she talks about how inspired she was, was by Claire because Claire knew what she wanted and just went after it. Oh, please. You know, and that's exactly how she appeared. She appeared just like a, an egoic adolescent who was pursuing her own desires. And it, when you... You know, when you make a film about a saint and you have someone up there who just is just full of pride and ego, where is the vibration going to come from? That, I mean, every so often you have movies like... Um, I, mean, I mean, that is the biggest flaw with most spiritual movies that are made. I was... Somewhere or another I, I saw or heard an interview, maybe it was People magazine when I was having my nails done, about <laughs> a man who'd played Jesus in one of the blockbuster movies about Jesus. And he, I mean, he was talking about the way he played Jesus. He said it was so difficult because I had to become a complete blank. Because he was a, 
drinking, smoking, carousing actor. And he essentially said that. And he, he couldn't be any of the things he really was. So he just played Jesus by just becoming a complete blank. And he talked about how boring it was. You know, but it's, this is the times we live in. And, you know, people try to modernize these stories by giving them more ego rather than attuning them. And then I was going to remember the very, very old original St. Bernadette of Lourdes, which is just an exquisite movie. And they just found this girl. I mean, she was a, who, she's a famous actress. You probably know her name, Tricia. But who just, she was a really, Jennifer Jones, just, you know, just a real saintly person. And you see it in her eyes. It was so beautiful. But whoever made the movie understood what a saint actually is. And uh, so, I mean, in our, the life we live, I'd probably rather see a bad movie about St. Francis than a good movie about a mafia hitman. <laughs> But probably better not to watch either one of them. I remember the first time I saw, I think it was Brother, Son, Sister, Moon, the um, philosophical flaws were pretty self-evident. I watched that movie on two levels. On one level, I knew it was awful. And on the other level, I was so happy to be watching a movie about St. Francis because everything I saw reminded me of what he really was. So I felt very, very uplifted. But at the same time, as Swami said, they made him, they made St. Francis, you know, seem like a confused halfwit who just stumbled into being a spiritual person. And just the same thing, this no, no comprehension. And you see the movies where Jesus does miracles and he breaks out into a sweat afterwards because he's working so hard and he's, he's breathing hard and sweating because the effort to manifest to turn the water into wine just took every ounce of strength he had and when he was finished he just had to you know he had to rest it just but they don't know so what can you expect anyway so master was uh, not eager to have his boys I also I, the whole scene is touching though I mean they lived in the monastery they wanted to leave the monastery and they wanted to go into Los Angeles to go to the movies but they couldn't just do that they had to ask Master, can we go out? And, and they were afraid to ask Master, but they knew that Swami would. But all of that is very, very dear. And it also speaks of a, an informality and an intimacy and a, a spontaneity about the life that they were living, which it's very important to have a real picture of what it was really like around Master. Because since he's gone... Um, the monastery and the ashram where he lived has become so formalized and so rule-bound and just so different than that. But Master was a very spontaneous and natural person. Avatar also, because that's what, that's what an avatar is really like. You know, he's not the building that he built. He's, he's this flow of energy that has only one interest, and that interest is to awaken and awaken the desire for self-realization in us. And nothing else makes any difference. Okay, any thoughts or questions? Tandava? I thought it was interesting that Master agreed, albeit reluctantly. Yes, I, he had perfect authority to say, no, just don't go see the movie. But, yeah. you know, he, he could apparently tell 
how much he could rein them in without yes. breaking something and exactly. how much he needed to let the line play out a little bit. Yeah, that's exactly right. That was very true. And, and then Swami was trapped. He realized he'd been trapped into it, but he had to go do it anyway. Very, very interesting. Okay, great souls. So we'll take a... Oh, wait, what did we do? We did actually... We, we finished at 45. So we, we finished from 41 through 45. And I need a pen because I will not remember this four weeks from now. Okay, and now we will all enjoy Christmas, Thanksgiving first, then Christmas, and we will send fabulous great energy out into the universe, won't we? Christmas will be a service to the whole planet, won't it? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Let's really keep it foremost in our consciousness. We can do a lot of good. Light is always more powerful than darkness. One candle can dissipate all the darkness. So we mustn't ever think for a minute that we don't have greater weapons than anybody else, because we do.